this morning, uh, I believe God's given us a word to continue uh, this new year. And it starts off with this question. Are we people of the wilderness or are we people of the promised land? Are we people of the wilderness or people of the promised land? And if you are unfamiliar with numbers, the book of numbers, not the concept numbers, That's for all the kids over on the other side. Uh, The book of Numbers chronicles the people of Israel and how God not only has taken them out of Egypt, which a lot of people know the story, the Red Sea parting and the Israelites, they leave. But then when they're in the wilderness, they begin to just grumble before God. And so starting in in chapter 11 and then working through chapter 14, that little section of Numbers, 11 through 14, those chapters... They describe how the people just relentlessly anger the Lord with their stubbornness, with their um, lost focus of who he is. And this is on the heels of the miracles he's done in Egypt, which works through all those different, the plagues and how God, what he did there. And then also the Red Sea. If you recall or if you're unfamiliar, God is leading them daily with a pillar. In the daytime, it's a giant pillar of a cloud. In the evening, or in the nighttime, it's a fire. So his presence is right there. He's providing them daily with manna. And yet, they're still like, you know, why don't we go back to Egypt? So if you go to chapter 11, it starts off with them just whining. They're like, you know, in Egypt, there's cucumbers, there's melons, there's, you know, like, I don't know, they break down a few things. And like, well, I wish we could go back to Egypt, you know? And then they beg the Lord for quail or, or for something, for meat. So he sends quail. He also sends pestilence after that because uh, they were a bunch of whiners. But he, meet, like, th- that's just their heart. And he is so angry at where their position is before him. If you keep going chapter, in the next chapter, chapter 12, Aaron and Miriam, this is Moses' brother and sister, they begin to whine. They're like, you know, if Moses is like hearing from God and able to speak, like, why can't we? Well, then Miriam gets uh, struck with uh, leprosy or some sort of skin disease. And then, you know, and then, then Moses pleads with God to heal her. And so she's cast out of the, uh, like the, the, the tent area, you know, for seven days. Then she's able to come back in and then they keep moving on. And then if you go to chapter 13, this is where like it's really coming to a head. Chapter 13, Moses selects 12 spies, one from each tribe. This is a story that, you know, the kids over on the other side, they hear this regularly. Maybe you recently talked to your kids through the story. But we can lose the, um, the oomph of it by just m- moving on. So in 13, all these spies go in. They see the land of Canaan. They're like, this is amazing. And then they come back and they report, it's amazing land. However, those people are huge. And that's what they, and their, their cities are fortresses. And we can't do it, right? They take their, their eyes off of what God had promised and they are looking at themselves and their own you know, deficiencies. Except for two guys, Caleb and Joshua. Well, it's so infuriating that, um, to God that he tells all the people that you are now going to walk through the wilderness for 40 years, one day for each, or, or one year for each day that the spies were uh, over in Canaan checking it out. And it was a disastrous moment in the life of Israel. They were about to be able to go right into Canaan, and instead, they're now having to wander around. The whole generation, the only ones who could live would be all the kids, you know, maybe those who are like 18 and under or so. They all get to go in with Joshua and Caleb, everybody else dies. 
And it's a, it's a tragic moment, but it's that moment in uh, Numbers that is referred to in the New Testament that we're going to look at. And so let me re-ask, and, and we'll get into this so it'll make a little more sense, but are we people of the wilderness or people of the promised land? So people of the wilderness, this is a generation that was deceived, and they were disgruntled. They were idolaters. They were they were completely unable to worship God despite his presence right there. I mean, uh, it would have been before the story I'm telling that while Moses is up on the mountain, they create a golden calf because they're like, you know, we gotta worship something. Like these people are just so uh, out of uh, track with what God wants for them. The promised land generation was obedient even though they did not see what God would do or how he would, say, take down Jericho, which we learn about later, but they didn't know that. They were faithful warriors. They were conquerors in accordance to God's plan. They experienced God's presence and they gladly obeyed. Now, what's interesting is both generations experienced God's presence. God was with them. Uh, they both experienced God's provision. They both experienced God's protection. But one generation worshiped him the latter one, right? But the former, they worshiped themselves. They were full of fear. They were full of grumbling. It was a mess. So which generation are we more like? Which generation are you more like? This comparison feels kind of disconnected because it happened thousands of years ago. But what's fascinating is the book of Hebrews talks about this. And the writer of Hebrews begs his readers saying, don't be like those people in the wilderness, don't be like that generation. And if the writer of Hebrews could tell those people that, then he you know, can tell us that as well. Right? God's word is still applicable for us in that same regard, not just for the early church. And so it might, uh, it might seem kind of out of sorts that the Israelites could see the miracles of God, yet they turned away. But if that's true for them, I wanna propose to you that can be true for us today. And that's not just a hypothetical scenario. This happens all the time. Every single year, we come back together. We have resolutions before the Lord. We have a great commitment after Christmas Eve. Oh, it's a lot of fun. I love Christmas Eve service. And we have all sorts of people, they wanna worship the Lord. And then by the end of that calendar year, you can look around the room and there'll be some people and you'll say, what happened to them? Like, where are they? And they, they fell into the trap of the people of the wilderness. It's just like the... the, the the enemy is no different in how he attacks and how he works. And so I want to urge us from Hebrews 3 to fix our eyes on Christ and to see how we can, in fact, overcome the temptations and the pull to be like those people. If they did it and they had literally God as a pillar of fire in front of their face at nighttime, if they wandered away, so can we. So Hebrews 3 talks through this. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews 3. While you're turning there, let me just say this, last week we looked at Psalm 46, chapter 10, or chapter 46, verse 10, which says, be still and know that I am God. I totally, I totally believe that the Lord gave us that as a great way to start the year off when it comes to our worship before the Lord. Be still and know that I am God. Well, I was praying like, okay, do we start the new series? And I still don't know what that new series is. So what do we do in the midst of waiting on like a, uh, a new series? We wait on the Lord and we continue to press in. And so this passage came to my heart uh, actually yesterday because I was praying all week and then I started feeling sick and I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna pass the baton unless the Lord gives me like a word. And I was like, yes, this is what we need to look at today as a church family. And I believe it has great power for us, not only because it's anchored in God's word, but it is literally like the manna for us today as a congregation. So 
this is where we are today. If this keeps going on next week, if I still don't know what the next series is, well, by then, we'll have three weeks in a row, and I guess that becomes like a series. So we'll just kind of see where we are uh, as this new year begins. But Hebrews 3 says this, if you've turned there. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I read this yesterday, and I haven't read it in a long time, and it's a terrifying passage in so many ways because it reminds us of what can happen for any of us, and yet there is great encouragement in it because it doesn't leave us hopeless at all. And so if you take last week along with this week, there's basically three uh, uh, like challenges for us. Last week would be be still, and then today is be watchful and exhort. And this passage talks about being watchful or being careful or, or taking heed and then lastly, exhorting. So let's talk through those two parts, being watchful and exhorting. The first one, be watchful. So I'm gonna reread uh, cha- uh, verse 12, but I'm gonna read it in the New Living Translation just to give a different perspective on the same text. It says, be careful then, dear brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God, which is just a crazy statement that we, that our own hearts would like draw us away from the living God, like the living water, the one who is bread, the one who is life. And yet we can find ourselves not only drifting, uh, but running. And so that opening word <clears throat> being, be careful. Some translations say, take care. Uh, the new King James says, beware. I like that phrase, be watchful, even though it's not totally like what it's saying, but it's this, this idea of this, this mind that is alert and keen to the, to the pull of your heart and the work of the enemy and the draw of culture and all sorts of things that can infiltrate your own heart and a purity of worship to the Lord. And if you recall, this says, be careful then, and then this next phrase is so important. It says, dear brothers and sisters. This statement is not just to anybody. This is to the church. This is to the redeemed. This is to God's people who've experienced the miracle of salvation, the miracle of regeneration in which you're like, I was once blind, but now I can see. And yet, you can still wander away. So this is a warning for us. One author said that this falling away is not a passive thing, but this is a deliberate disobedience. So this would be the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit at work in our life. This would be the opposite of what Hebrews 10 says, where it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And so what can make someone's heart so unbelieving? I mean, that's the question I'm asking for myself. How can somebody get so off track After all that God has done for us, why would we walk away? Well, it's because at the end of the day, we are like the people of the wilderness. So this passage in Hebrews 3, it it refers back to Numbers uh, chapter 14, but also there's a psalm that talks about this too. It's one of those wonderful passages where there's multiple authors talking about the same event. So Psalm 95 writes down this whole thing. I'm just gonna look at the second half of Psalm 95. So let me read for it, or read it for us. It says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. 
today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation. And I said, they are a people who will go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You know, over the next year, some of us will experience uh, a lot of unexpected moments, right? We don't know the future. And so some of these, like in life, so much will be the same. We'll have the same, like for many of us, the same car, the same house, that same squeaky door that you like didn't repair and it's gonna be the same way next year at this time. But life will also have a whole bunch of unexpected uh, disappointments or sad moments. And I would call those tests right, a challenge or a test before the Lord. And in that moment, the enemy will tempt you to walk away from God. He will breathe lies to you about who God is and God's love for you. And in those moments, you'll have the choice to believe God or believe the adversary, to either accept the, and trust God or to accept and, and trust the uh, deception of the enemy. And if you go into the ladder, you're like those that Psalm 95 talks about, the ones at Meribah. Now, when you look at scripture, especially in Hebrew uh, language, there's sometimes these words that have a lot of meaning to them. And uh, in this case, we see that. Meribah means, or Massa means testing. Meribah means embitterment. And that last word is what really stands out. Because in these moments of testing, we can become bitter. We can become bitter people in our faith. In the last month, I have prayed with people in our church, you all in our church family, over all sorts of things that if you let linger, make you bitter before the Lord. Questions that we have asked are, include this. Why is there no change in this one area when I have been praying for change? Or why am I still single? Or why is my dream job still out of reach? Or why is my chronic health condition not healed? Medication after medication or trial after trial. Why is my child still wandering? Why can't I have children, right? Miscarriage after miscarriage. Why does this happen? Some of us are asking, why is my spouse still hard-hearted without breakthrough? And what really like, I guess, twists the knife is then you look around, you're like, the, some of these folks in Restore, I'm seeing breakthrough in their marriage. I'm seeing breakthrough here, left or right. We're having testimonies here and there. What about me? And the enemy will tell you that, well, God forgot you or fill in the blank with any other thing. And in those moments of testing, I urge you, do not harden your heart. As Psalm 95, 7 says, I read this. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And so in those moments, the enemy will try with all of his strength, and he's got great tactics, and he does this for me and you. They're all the same tactics, but they just look different ways sometimes. He'll try to infuse your mind and your heart and your blood with the beliefs like God's left you. And it builds bitterness and anger and lies. So do not let him, do not crack that door. And if for some of you you'd say, listen, I have let that door get cracked open, then I urge you to acknowledge it, confess it, take it to the Lord this morning. Don't keep going because it's only going to build. Colossians 1.23 also parallels some of this. The language says this. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. 
Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. We must stand firm. 1 Timothy 6 and 2 Timothy 1 uses the language guard. It says guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. You gotta guard it, you gotta stand firm, you gotta be alert, you gotta be aware. You know, for a lot of us, when it comes to salvation, it's a wonderful moment of, 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 of change because, and transformation, because the Lord um, takes the, the scales just kind of fall off your eyes and you realize your need for a savior. Before we were saved, all of us in here, all we're in a place where I'm just like, I don't really need a savior, or I don't know, I don't, the Bible story, whatever. But then at that moment where the Holy Spirit hits your heart like a train, you respond to him and you realize you need a savior, and it's amazing. I don't remember where I was going with that. But that's okay, I'll keep going. I had something, but I don't know. I guess that's all we're gonna do with that one. Well, so with this, let's keep our heart attuned to the things of God. One of the worst things uh, about uh, about pastoring is uh, is when there are uh, the uh, the casualties of spiritual war, and uh, sometimes it's like a slow uh, car crash, like you just kind of see it in slow motion and you know it's coming. And other times it takes you by surprise. And that's why we are urged to be watchful. Watchful the enemy's tactics, all right? So all of us gotta be watchful. Me, you, all of us. The next passage, though, is this reminder for us in our role. Like, so we're not just watching and like, okay, well, the enemy's attacking here or there. But what are we to do? Well, we are to exhort one another. What a wonderful thing. So exhort yourself and exhort one another. So Hebrews 3.13 says, you must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. This verse contains one of the scariest realities in our faith and that is our own heart can become hardened against God. If we allow it, me or you, a, a, a preacher you listen to or read, uh, a Christian who's just like really walked with the Lord who's really been a great model of the faith to you or somebody who's a newborn Christian. Any of us can have a hardened heart against God. If the people of Israel in the wilderness did it, so can we. That's what the Hebrews author is emphasizing here. In Numbers 14, verse nine, the one verse I do wanna pull from that whole chapter, it says this, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for their bread to us, right? Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. I think those are the words of Joshua, uh, made Joshua or Caleb to the people as they're freaking out about those in Canaan and saying we can't conquer them. Well, this language of do not rebel against the Lord is the same one about like what we were just reading, turning away from the living God and having a heart that's hardened against who God is and what he can do. Joshua, in this, in this moment, right, he's, he's talking through this and he's challenging them in this way. And so for us, we, we can ask this question, what is the antidote from having a hard heart? How do we prevent this in our life? Today, at, uh, next year, uh, in 30 years, whatever it may be, how do we stop this? Well the writer gives us the direct 
application. He says exhort or warn. Some of your translations say encourage. Encourage one another. While it's today, keep encouraging each other. This is an individual uh, exhortation for us. This is a collective one for all of us to one another. And, and equally, there's a, there can be an individual hardening and there can also be a collective hardening. I mean, that's a whole other level to this whole conversation. It's not just that one person. We're talking an entire congregation of people can find themselves hardened against the heart of God, or their, their hearts can be hardened against God. That happened with the people of Israel. He had a few naysayers, the 10 spies come back. They're like, we can't do it. You know, even though Joshua and Caleb, they said, we can't, we can't do it. Well, the ten, we can't do it. Well, then all the people are like, we can't do it. And they're all screaming. And they, like the, 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 I didn't say this at the beginning, but the turning point was, in, then they say, and I think it's in verse four or five of chapter 14, and they say, you know what? Let's just elect a leader to take us back to Egypt. Well, it's at that point the Lord's like, all right, no more. And, um, and it demonstrates their hardened heart. Well, friends, let us be terrified of the reality, and, and like a holy terror that our own heart or that like the collective hearts here could be hardened against the Lord. So how do we prevent this? Well, we exhort one another. Let me talk through what this looks like. Exhorting is challenging or lifting up or helping people and specifically to, to, to see what they have lost sight of. Like so those folks in Israel, they were seeing God right there and they needed somebody like Joshua to say, hey, 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 get your eyes off of the situation in front of you and remember who it is that's going before us. I mean, we just got out of Egypt through the Red Sea. If God can do that, then we can, do we can take out these people one city at a time? Well, same for us today. We can tell each other, hey, listen, I know, I know this is a struggle, but remember what he did here? Remember what he did there? How he, what he did in your life in this moment? What he did in this other person's life that we love? That testimony we heard? So on and so on. We could, we, any of us, and it happens to me, at some point, every week, I lose my uh, focus on, on like who God really is, what he's really doing, and I can begin to fall into any sort of traps and you know, maybe uh, self-pity or something, and just like, oh, I don't know what's happening here. And it takes somebody's wonderful exhortation to say, hey, remember who God is. And oh yeah, that, that is who God is. But in my fallibility or whatever, you can lose that um, focus. And that can happen for any of us. So we want to, uh, Challenge people in those ways. Sometimes you can ask questions like this to other people. You know, what have you been reading in scripture lately? I love that question because it allows us to like, yeah, yeah, that is where I do find daily spiritual nourishment. That is important. It's not just about like listening to a wonderful worship song or uh, hearing a good sermon, but what have you personally been reading in scripture lately? Another one is like, hey, what's a challenge that you're experiencing lately? You know, before the Lord or from the enemy? And just kind of like get into some stuff that we're dealing with. When you ask those questions, it allows uh, two people or maybe a small group or whatever it may be to really dig into the obstacles that we're facing. So this is part of what exhorting is. I think it's a lot like a personal trainer. You know, if you have a personal trainer like at the gym, you've hired them, you've asked them to like help you get bigger, faster, stronger, or maybe not bigger, maybe leaner, but faster and stronger. And <laughs> bigger, faster, stronger is what we used to say in high school football, but like, that's not what we do as adults, I guess. So you want them, you, they, they help you with your, your diet and stuff. And if they were to ask you questions, you say, hey, uh, how much pizza and candy did you eat yesterday? You're not saying, hey, don't judge me. You're like, no, no, I want that challenge. I want that prodding. I want to be uh, better in my own faith. Well, in church, church circles, we can get kind of uncomfortable with that. 
but I wanna encourage us and remind us that that exhortation is so helpful. So I see exhortation in a few ways. One way, it's kind of a natural encouragement and edification that takes place just by living life together. This is a little more of a passive way. Uh, one of those would be when you're in a group together, you're able to learn from one another. You're talking about scripture, you're praying with one another. Even if it's not specifically on scripture or like the spiritual disciplines or, or who God is, just by being in life together, you can be encouraged. All the groups I've been a part of in this church family have been wonderful. One, one of the first ones, for many years, uh, we were uh, in a group over with the roads, and it was so awesome because I saw, like, we were able to just, like, live life together, and uh, Lynn and I felt so cared for when we roll in with our newborn baby, and we're like, we don't know what we're doing with this, and we're exhausted, and they're, you know, the lady's, like, holding row and passing them around, and I was like, oh, this is so wonderful. I feel so loved and served, and I was just edified in my own faith by the service of others right there in the room. Or we're talking about random stuff from our families to work, whatever it may be, and how God is at work in those moments, and those things were helpful. It wasn't only theological conversations. So there's this, like, passive element of exhortation that occurs just by living life with people who are running the race together. I actually think about running the race with that because, um, so I used to do track, and with track, like, you'd, you'd run together with our, like, our, our long training, and when you're running, I don't know, for 30 minutes or so, you'd be training, and you, somebody's like, oh, I'm kind of feeling, you know, something in my stomach, or, oh, hey, did, did you drink water? Like, you know, grab the water if they have it with them or something, or eat a quick snack when you get back. Like, there's just these little moments of encouragement along the way with running the race. And in a lot of ways, I think uh, our faith is like that we're able to just give these little moments of, of uh, prodding and keep going. And that's probably like that. That's like a really, I would say that's like a, a healthy form of exhortation where it's just like the, um, the life together side of things. But then there's the other side, and this is like usually more verbal. It's uh, usually characterized more like admonishment or rebuking. Uh, and uh, yes, it can be encouraging with like, hey, you know, I just love seeing what God's doing in your life. But other times it's saying like, what are you doing? Like, why are you leaving your family? You've become entranced and disillusioned for a lie. What are, you, what are you doing here? And usually the response in these moments is justifying it, using Bible language, and then saying like, don't judge me, bro. And you're like, no, I, I'm literally not judging. I, I, I'm literally observing the fact that you have a faithful wife of 30 years and you've walked away. I'm, I, like, all I'm saying is you're abdicating your responsibility as a father or as a, as a mother to do this. Like, what, what are you thinking? And, and you can't justify it saying, well, uh, you know, love is love or something. It's like, no, no. This, your commitment to the Lord and to one another is true. And so there's just a, and there can be a genuine exhortation and rebuke and admonishment in those moments. So when you think about this whole idea of running the race well, and faithfulness to God. I, I think of it a lot like a, a vow that you make to your spouse at the wedding day. In that moment, you're like, I am committing to you. And when it comes to belief in Jesus Christ, it's God, I believe in you. I believe in what Jesus has done for me. But more than that, I trust in you. I surrender to you. I wanna commit my life to you. I am I'm yielded to you. I, I am I'm like bound to you, right? And the people in Numbers 14, they got disillusioned, and we can also allow that to happen. So let me just keep working through some of this 
Let me talk through <clears throat> three different gates that can leave, lead to an unbelieving heart. Because for any of us, you know, you might be doing really well now, and all it takes, like literally for some of us this week, the enemy already has scheduled out for your intersection with some sort of thing that could be the, um, the, the crack that will lead to eventual hardening of your heart or walking away from the Lord. So like there's, and there's a bunch, but three really stand out to me when it comes to gates that can lead to an unbelieving heart. So the first one would be enticements. Okay, so this is like, for you guys who are married, this is like that woman that is not your wife and is uh, drawing your eyes and attention and your heart. And like, well, that is leading you down the path of adultery. So you wanna avoid that. Uh, for some of us, this is uh, using our phones to gamble uh, with all the stuff that's out there right now because it's so accessible, so easy. And they're like, hey, give $100 and you make $1,000. Yeah, well, you also get yourself into a bunch, of, a bunch of bondage. So don't go that route. It could be a drug. It could be other things. So there's enticements. Another one would be kind of the next step with that, but this would be addictions, uh, all the things that lead to shame and different bondage that's associated with those addictions. And you're in those, and you're just, you find yourself scrapping and you can't really get out of it. If that's you, by the way, I urge you to join a group, specifically Restore on Tuesday nights. Fantastic group that walks through what you do when you don't know what to do, right? So. There's enticements, and then there's addictions, and then the third one would be theological critique from a place of pride. Now, I don't see this too much in our own congregation, but this is really popular like out, uh, in, in academic settings, um, on, online, uh, with like trending videos or blogs, and occasionally people in here, but they don't tend to stay too long. And so, <clears throat> well, it's just, it's just true. It just, it's like, it doesn't really work. So, these are hearts that uh, usually assume the worst about why we as Christians believe what we believe and why we practice what we practice. So this is not just questioning, this is not bouts of doubt in which you're just like, I just don't know, like we all have those different moments. I'm talking a, a, a concerted effort to say, how do I dismantle what has been taught to me? Because clearly, because the thinking is this, and they usually say clearly, I'm like, it's not clear, this is, this is what do you, it's clearly not clear. Clearly, I've been taught this out of a place of great um, error. Like as if all the theologians and church leaders and people over the last 2,000 years have been walking one path, and yet you will find this novel path that cracks the code as to why, I don't know, fill in the blank in your faith. So this happens in kind of three big areas, and I want to talk through it just, just quickly. One area is believing that God's word is not the final authority in matters of faith and life. So this is disagreeing with orthodox creeds that have been believed and trusted for 2,000 years. This is uh, denying that God's word is inspired and inerrant and authoritative in our life. When you adhere to that time and time again, like there are, I cannot think of exceptions and I have read thousands of examples Time and time again, once you adhere that God's word isn't, isn't legitimate, you begin to walk down a path of a slippery slope and everything starts to get questioned in ways that just ruin your faith. I see it all the time. 
Now, it doesn't mean you have to blindly just say, yeah, God's word is true because Adam said it is. No, like there are literal breakdowns and explanations as to why we can believe this. It's not ignorant, it's not lame, it's legit, it's scholarly, it has held up over 2,000 years, and even farther when it comes to God's word, because I would go back to um, you know, the beginning with, with Genesis and all of God's word and the canon there. But uh, that is one, one area uh, I caution you against. And when I say that, I like what I mean is if you're in a, if you wanna have questions on it, I'd love to talk with you on it. But if you're in a place where you're like, you know what, eh, this is garbage, well, okay, you're walking in a place where you're gonna start hardening your heart. A second one is critiquing who Jesus is and what Jesus did, specifically calling his resurrection a legend and, um, and acting as if there's no legitimate evidence that proves that it's true. So this is, this is a common one as well. Uh, the last one would be convincing yourself that church is optional to the faith. So obviously there's moments or there's seasons when you gotta be home or you're homebound. It is really tough to watch online. Everyone at home, hey, kudos to you. It is hard to participate and like have a vibrant faith when you're like distant. Like it is, it's just so difficult. You know, all of you in here, rather than judging people at home, pray for them at home, it is hard to be there. However, let us recognize that when we allow an extracurricular activity to replace our faith community or when we allow ourselves to just be uh, nonchalant or apathetic, we begin to get ourselves into a place. Like you're basically getting on a raft that's gonna take you down the river of hardened hearts. It happens over and over again because you get disconnected from the exhortation of the faith. Some, uh, one of the authors uh, or theologians on this text in Hebrews 3, he said this is, uh, verse 12, 13, or 14, this is essentially what chapter 10, 25 also says. I'm gonna read that for us. Most of us know this one. Y'all were quoting it to me throughout COVID. Hebrews 10, 25 says, let us consider how to stir one another up uh, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So when we get away from church life, we are totally like that animal in every single nature documentary that gets away from the herd and then the cheetah eats it or the lion eats it. Like we, this, is, this is the feature, this is the trailer for every single new Discovery Channel thing that's like one every three months and we act like that. So next time you see the commercial for it, think hey, that's like me if I get away from my church family. So <laughs> those are three common theological lies, again, um, Again, it's, it's not a genuine research. I have worked through all these in my own life. Like, I, I'm not just pastoring. I've literally worked through, is, is the church as it is, and as we gather, and as we function, is that really God's intention for? I mean, working through all sorts of stuff. If you're genuinely seeking, that's great. That's a great place to be. If you are pridefully critiquing, yeah, you're, you're in big danger if you start walking down that road. So, we wanna be watchful and we wanna exhort one another. Let me finish out this message with verse 14, which is uh, Hebrews 3, 14. It says, for if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. So our participation with Christ, it says what we share with Christ, uh, some passages are saying uh, participation with Christ or union with Christ, that is a glorious a glorious union or a glorious bond for us. 
We are bound to him in his crucifixion. This is declared by our confession of faith to him. This is expressed by our baptism. And this is testified to in our sufferings. We suffer alongside just as Christ suffered. And like the generation of the wilderness who did not lose the covenant status as God's people, but... um, uh, because they were disloyal and they were disobedient, but they did lose the opportunity to enter the promised land. So some of us are like that. So we'll be tempted to drop the baton or walk away from the faith. We have still called God our Savior, but we are in a place where our heart is hardened. They're like a, the prodigal son who's just wandering, and you're watching, saying, "What are you? What are you doing? What are you doing? Come back!" But remember, the father hasn't forgotten that prodigal son or daughter who's sitting on the porch waiting for them to return, calling for them to return. Friends, I wanna urge you that uh, we want to be those who participate with Christ in his joys and his victories and his sorrows. And if we are not, then we are gonna be like those Christians who are characterized in 1 Corinthians chapter three. These are builders who've been given an opportunity to build wonderful things for the Lord, but instead they fail. And it says this in 1 Corinthians three. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Due to our immature faith and our habitual disobedience, we can harden our heart to the Lord. It's a process that takes time. And so, let's go back as we conclude with that verse. It said it in a few different places, but it says, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your heart. You know, if you're still able to hear the voice of the Lord, I urge you to respond to him while it's still audible to you because we can find ourselves in a place where we're no longer hearing it and then we're uh, well, outside of personal revival and, and, uh, and a miracle, we become uh, disconnected from God. So by the power of the Holy Spirit who is at work within us, we can be faithful to the end. I wanna urge you to be watchful this new year for the ways that the enemy may be drawing you away from Jesus. And I also wanna urge you to exhort one another as long as today is called today. With them, as, as God places on your heart somebody to reach out to, to text, to call, to talk to, that is not coincidence. They could be one moment away from saying, you know what, I'm just kinda, I'm just, I'm just done. I'm just done with Jesus. And so, so encourage them as God prompts you to. That is no coincidence at all.